I, I, I say this every single week. Y'all probably get tired of it, but I'm being serious. You come to these passages and I think, man, I'm just going to blitz through this tonight. And then you start studying them and the richness of God's word really just comes out. And Exodus 24 uh, is one of those chapters. In fact, uh, one pastor, Philip Graham Ryken, said that this is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. One of the most important chapters in the Old Testament, Exodus 24. Most of y'all, or many of you probably never thought of Exodus 24 as one of those great chapters in Scripture. You think about the Old Testament. You think about Genesis 1 through 3. You think about some other places, Psalm 23. You think about Isaiah 40. You think about all of those passages that we, we know and we remember. And Exodus 24 probably doesn't come to the forefront, but what a powerful chapter this is. And so if we can, I'm going to do my best not to ramble, but to walk us through this chapter and see its importance. In fact, it stands kind of as a pivot point for us because this is going to be the moment that we've been waiting on really since Exodus 3. The moment we've been waiting on since Exodus 3. And I'll show you what I mean by that. It's the moment that Israel has been looking toward. And what happens next is God is going to give his design on how he is going to dwell with his people starting in chapter 25 and through chapter 32. So, so Let's get down to it. That's what y'all are saying. Let's get down to it. Let's do it. Let's talk about it and, and get there. If I can, looking at chapter 24, Pastor Nathan already opened us up in prayer, so let's jump in. We saw in chapter 23, the end of it was the end of that book of the covenant where God uh, reestablished his faithfulness to Israel. So he had come to Sinai. They brought him to Mount Sinai. He had given them his 10 words, his 10 commandments. He had done that with his own voice thundering from the mountain. At the end of those 10 words, remember, the, are the 10 commandments. They said, we've heard enough. We're terrified. Moses, you just listened to him. And so God said, come on up, Moses. And Moses goes up and they, he continues to give Moses the rest of those laws built off of those 10 commandments. The case law, if you will, the more specific of the laws. And so he gives them the rest of those. And then at the end of it there in chapter 23, at the end, we saw this last, last week, he makes them a promise. I'm going to send my man, remember that, to go before you. I'm going to take you home. I'm going to get you there. He reiterates the promises he's been making again to them. This is the book of the covenant. Here is the government by which you will exist as my people in this land I'm going to take you, and I'll make sure you get safely there. Remember, he even said he's going to send wasps or bees out in front, hornets, right? Isn't that what it was? Hornets out in front of them. I will take care of you, even sending out the hornets. And so ultimately now we come to chapter 24. And what happens in chapter 24 is we get this covenant relationship confirmed. Now, if I can, the reason why I said this goes back to chapter 23, because chapter 3, excuse me, is because remember what happens in chapter 3. Does anybody remember what happened in chapter 3? Big group, so it's dangerous to ask questions and have y'all yell out at me. In chapter 3 is when God showed up and identified himself to Moses. If you remember, chapter 3 is when Moses is keeping the sheep and he had come to Sinai. He was there at Sinai and God appeared to him in a bush that is burning and not consumed. 
And God tells him, I want you to go and get my people out of Egypt and bring them back to me. Y'all remember that? What's your name? I am who I am, right? So God reveals his name to Moses in chapter 3. But if you look back, God tells him exactly what he's going to do. He says, and I'll go to verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What God is saying is, I'm going to send you, and here will be my sign. Not only will you come out of Egypt, but you'll be right back here worshiping me. So I'll see that? That's the promise God made in chapter 3. You'll be right, I'm going to, you're going to go get my people and you're going to come right back here to where I show up to you in this bush that's burning and not consumed and I will show up again and I won't burn a bush to show up. This time the whole mountain is going to be ablaze and you will worship me right here. And so looking back, it's been that moment. Is God going to fulfill his promises? Well, we know God always fulfills his promises, right? And so in that moment in chapter 3, we now come to chapter 24. God has fulfilled his promise. He has sent Moses into Egypt. Moses brought the people out. They came back to the mountain. God showed up there. He not only showed up, he gave them the government by which they will live by, the law by which will be theirs. And what I mean by that is that God has said from the beginning that he wants to be their God, they will be his people, and he will dwell with them, right? And so here, God is saying, this is how my people will live in my presence. Exodus chapter 24 is all about the people of God dwelling in the presence of God. That's what it's about. The people of God dwelling in the presence of God. So having established the covenant guidelines through the Ten Commandments, through the book of the covenant, which were those case laws that were given, with another promise that I've brought you here to this place, now I'm going to take you to the next place and get you safely home. God is ready to confirm that covenant again with his people in Exodus 24. So that's where we pick up. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Now, we get what God's calling them to do. We have in this what's called a graded holiness by some. You have the three sections. The people would be on the ground. The elders would come up about halfway, let's say, on the mountain. And then Moses would go up even farther. And so what happens here in verses 1 and 2, you have the introduction of about the what's, what's about to take place. So when we go from 1 to 2 into 3, it's not as if Moses has carried out all of those things right away. We're going to see first 
the people on the ground. Then we'll see the 70 elders and leaders go up to meet God, and then we'll see Moses at the end go into the presence of God. Does that make sense to everybody? And so kind of verses 1 and 2 set up what's about to happen. God is calling, having established his law and how you are to live according to his rule in his presence. Now he's calling his people into his presence. But some things have to take place here. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses comes down the mountain. He's got the book of the covenant with him, right? He's got that book with him. He's got all these laws that he has received. He comes down the mountain and he reads them out to the people. And the people do what? We agree. We will do. This goes back, by the way, if you look back, this is not the first time they have agreed. So you go back to chapter 19, just a few pages back in chapter 19. And uh, he says, thus the Lord called them, verse 3, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of God. So God gives an introduction in chapter 19 of what's about to happen. I'm going to give you my words. You are going to receive my words. And if the people will obey my words, that will testify that they are my people. I love this. I was looking at this earlier. And gosh, I shouldn't skip ahead because, man, we're going to be in Exodus 33 like within a week or two. But, uh, but I love in, in Exodus 32... I'm going to refer to Exodus 32 a couple times, but I love in Exodus 32, it's, it's actually a sad scene, but I love what the Lord says. Because in Exodus 32, after Exodus 24, Moses goes up on the mountain and he's gone for 40 days, right? And y'all know what happened while Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. People get restless. They want something to look at. They gather all the gold. Aaron makes a calf. Y'all remember what I'm saying? And they worship the golden calf because they don't know if Moses is coming back. Well, remember, Moses is up there just jotting down what the Lord is saying. And the Lord said to Moses, as they make this golden calf, Moses doesn't know what's going on, but the Lord says to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, and they have corrupted themselves. Do y'all see what he says the Lord does? Go get your people. Because the Lord says, my people are faithful. You go get your people, right? Well, in Exodus 19, the Lord has said this. He says, here's it. I'm going to give you my word. I'm going to give you my word, and I'm going to make you priests unto myself. I'm going to bring you into my presence if you'll keep it. And what did the people say in chapter 19, verse 7? Moses came out, elders set before him. All the people answered together. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Everything he said, we'll do it. The people are committed to do God's word, right? Well, then we see the same thing in Exodus 24. 
Moses, now having the word of God even more forthrightly through the law that is given, comes down and reads the word of God, and he says to the people, will you do it? And they say with one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This first paragraph is part of this is happening with the people of God in the first part of this chapter. And man, is this not important in Scripture. This is so important that we see because it lays out a plan here. It lays out a plan. Moses gets that first initial, we will do it. We understand and accept. In other words, that first time here in the chapter that the word is given and they say up in verse up in verse. Uh, Verse 3, that first time that word is given and they said, we will do it, it's like they are understanding what is required and they're accepting it, you know? It's like saying, I do in the, in the wedding. Do you take this woman? I do. We, don't, I, I, we do weddings nowadays. I don't think many people do that part anymore. But if you know what I'm saying, it's that first initial. Do you understand what's going on today? I do, right? And then you have the vows given. And in those vows, you're increasing that I do to an even more extent. So the first time it is read, it's like, all right, we hear you. We accept the terms of the agreement. We agree to live. We know what we're doing. We agree to that. And so then they start the process. Once that is read and started, then we see what happens next. First, there is a sacrifice that is offered. A sacrifice of blood, and that blood is used for a reason. Symbolically, he rises early in the morning, builds an altar at the foot of the mountain, the 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel, and he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood and threw it out on the altar, and he took the rest, the book of the covenant, read it again in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. It's like the first time they say, we hear what you're saying, and we accept the terms. And then the second time it's read, it's read with a sense of not only do we accept the terms, we will follow. We promise that we will be your people. So let's look at this process, because I think there is a clear parallel here that we'll see in the New Testament. And I think this has everything to do with us. I really do. Like, this is not foreign for us. This is important for us. First, what, and if I say this first, let me go first. This is what it means to come into God's presence. This is the only way anyone can come into God's presence. 
Do y'all hear what I'm saying? In Exodus 24, it lays out the way that anybody, including us today, can come into God's presence. Do y'all hear what I'm saying? Like this is not old news. This is not something that's distant. This is not something that's foreign. This is exactly the way that you and I can enter into the presence of God right now. Exodus 24. Let's see it. First, there has to be a sacrifice that's made, a blood sacrifice that is offered. And that sacrifice has to do something. That sacrifice is not just merely symbolic. It does something, right? It is efficient in what it does. And so ultimately there has to be an offering of sacrifice and the blood has to be taken. And it is symbolic that that blood is thrown on the altar and on the people. Here's why we say that works for us even. So I, I hesitated, do I like go through all this, then go to the New Testament or whatever, but let's just go with the gut. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 is the place that we see of this offering on the altar. The argument of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. All right? That's the argument. He's the better and greater Moses. He's the better and greater rest. He's the better and greater high priest. He's the better and greater sacrifice. Jesus is better than all of it. And so Hebrews is particularly taking Old Testament and showing how Jesus is greater, right? In fact, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews will say, we offered up blood of bulls and goats before, but the blood of bulls and goats can't save anybody, he says. It's pointing to one that's greater. And so in Hebrews 9, it's making this argument. He says, therefore he, that's Jesus, is the mediator, verse 15, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Down to verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, he's referring directly back right here to Exodus 24. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If we're going to come into the presence of God, then our sins must be forgiven. And our sins can only be forgiven through a sacrifice of shed blood. That's what he's saying. We believe, y'all, we believe in the blood, right? We believe that that's where it's found. It's, uh, granted, our culture day and age don't like to talk about stuff like that, Right? But we have to go back and say that's where sins are forgiven. And the argument that the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is making is we saw that in Exodus 24, but now we've got Jesus. And he was the sacrifice 
because the blood of bulls and goats can't save anybody. It was just pointing to a day when that sacrifice was come. Jesus has come. He shed his own blood. And where did he sprinkle his own blood? Thus it was necessary, verse 23, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now was it to offer, nor was it to offer uh, himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood of his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all, the end of the ages, to put away sin, sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man to die once and comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who were eagerly waiting on him. He's drawing back to say what happened when Christ died was his own blood was shed. He, being the great high priest, went into the heavenly places and sprinkled his blood on the altar in heaven. That's what he did. He sprinkled his blood there. And so now, if we are going to enter into the presence of God, it's because we enter in through the shed blood of Christ Jesus who has sprinkled it on the altar in heaven and has covered us with it. So are you washed in the blood? Y'all know what I'm talking about? It's a direct correlation to Exodus 24. You have to be covered in this blood. And as he sprinkled it on the people, he is qualifying them to enter into the presence of God. The sacrifice has to be made and the blood has to be shed and the altar has to be cleansed and the people have to be cleansed. That's the first step if we're going to enter into the people of God. We have to come in through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our sacrifice, our great high priest. By the way, one of the great themes in Scripture, if you read the Old Testament, and I know I'm giving you all a lot, so just hang on and just, I'm not going to slow down. So one of the ways this happens, right, is there's three offices in the Old Testament. There's the prophet, the priest, and the king. Those are the three offices of Israel. And, and what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus fulfills all three of those offices. He is the prophet, priest, and king. He is the king who would become a servant on behalf of his people and die for them. So he steps off his throne to serve them. Y'all see what I'm saying? He's the prophet who is the word himself. He is not only the prophet, but the message the prophet is bringing. And he's the priest who is also the sacrifice himself that offers of himself as the sacrifice on behalf of his people. Exodus 24 says, if we're going to enter into God's presence first, we have to go through the sacrifice shed blood that has been sprinkled on the altar and on us. And what we see here that was done with Moses, Hebrews tells us it, will, it was done ultimately by Christ. It was just pointing towards something greater. By the way, Hebrews chapter 10, if y'all still got your finger in Hebrews, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's given that idea that we draw near into God's presence through the fact that we've been sprinkled clean. Sprinkle clean. Or you have Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. I mean, this is, I'm, I, this is overkill at this point because I think the point's been made. But I want y'all to have these references to go back and see this. 
For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire. This is verse, what a verse. My goodness, these, I'm going to have to get stronger glasses. Good grief. I tell you what, once it starts, it just keeps going bad, doesn't it? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Does anybody can relate? Man, I started out with like just plus ones. And like in a week, it was plus 1.5. And these are plus twos, and I don't even think they do the job anymore. Good grief. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. Y'all know what he's talking about? He's talking about Exodus 20, 21, 22. Remember, the fire was, I mean, the mountain was on fire. The voice was sounding like a trumpet, and it was like a storm was raging, a tempest was raging over it. And remember what the people said at the end of the Ten Commandments? We can't listen to it anymore. It's too much. Here, the author is talking exactly about our passage in Exodus. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the word of the blood of Abel. It's referring directly, see there? Not even math. Referring directly back to Exodus 22 and 23 and saying, we've got something better than they had. We've got Christ or even 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm just going to have to get a large print Bible. <laughs> Seriously, I thought that would never happen to me. How foolish. To those who are elect, 1 Peter 1, 1. Exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. All of this is referenced back. If we're going to come into the presence of God, we must be sprinkled and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Then, next, what happens? If we're going to come into God's presence, first we be sprinkled and washed. Second, we must hear the word and confess faith. That's actually two and three, I think. If we're going to come into the presence of God, then we do not, and you've heard me say this before, we do not come on our own terms. The people of Israel were in no condition to negotiate the contract right here. They saw the mountain quake, they saw the storm raging, they heard the voice, and they knew this was not a negotiation. This guy's in charge. He's in charge. And so when we come to God, we don't get to negotiate the deal. Hey, God, I tell you what, I really like commandments one through three, right? But sometimes commandment four, you know, honor the, is that mom and dad? Sometimes, is that, what was that? Sabbath. Sometimes, it's because of glasses. Sometimes, <laughs> commandment four is not really something I want to do. 
You know, sometimes I don't like that one too much. And sometimes we just need to lie. So I tell you what, if you will cut back a little bit on that lying one, I'll join in and sign your contract. Does anybody think that's the way it works? How often do we do the same thing with God himself? We try to negotiate what we'll do in this deal. Let me tell you what I will give you. I'll give you two Sundays a month, Lord. Did you know, by the way, that the average churchgoer now goes two Sundays a month? Y'all think what the, that's what the Lord meant? Uh, here's the preacher getting on the people. And I'm not talking to anybody in this room because y'all are always here and always present. Do y'all think that's what the Lord meant when he said, honor him and do not forsake assembling together? Just pick and choose how many you want to be a part of? Ultimately, we don't get to negotiate this contract. God's word is written and we either affirm that and follow it or we do not. If we're going to enter into God's presence, we come on his terms. And here, that's what happens in Exodus 24. God's word is read, and what do they say? They have to confess their faith in it for the third time, but they go even farther here. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. If you're going to come into God's presence, you've got to be washed clean by his blood. You've got to hear the word of God, what he requires, and you've got to be willing to follow. Notice the order, though. I love the order of this because the order of this was after the sacrifice that was made, wasn't it? It was after that sacrifice in some sense. And so, in other words, it's like before, I'll wash you clean, but you've got to follow me. You're not following him to get the sacrifice made. You're following him because he is the sacrifice. He's the only way. If we're going to enter into the presence, we have the sacrifice that has to be made, sprinkled with the blood. The word of God has to be understood and read, and it has to be confessed by us. We will follow. We have to give our confession of faith. And then we go to the next part when that happens. Moses took the blood, threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance now we go to the second step. That's how we come into God's people comes into his presence, sprinkled with his blood, hear the word of God, read and confess faith in this. Confess faith in him. Now, these sprinkled blood, with blood people are here. And what does that mean for us ultimately? It means that we've been accepted by his grace. When we're washed in the blood of Christ, we've been accepted by the grace of God. We've been acquainted with his word and we're committed to his ways. That's what a follower of God is. Someone who has been trusting in God's grace, acquainted with his word, and committed to his ways. Then we go to the next step in this passage. Because now they're going to leave that section there with the people, and they're going to take the leaders, the elders, some 70 of them, and they're going halfway up the mountain. Y'all get that? So now they go. Then Moses and Aaron... Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, in verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. The people of God have been sprinkled with the blood. They've heard the word and the conditions, and they have confessed faith and agreement to follow. And what happens next? They are brought into the presence of God. 
They're brought into the presence of God. They saw the God of Israel. This is an absolutely visual event. They're seeing this God. And I'm going to be honest, this passage leaves us with a lot of questions. There's more we want to know here because they see the God of Israel and it seems as if God is manifesting himself out even in this place uh, with human form. And we know, we know though what happens in Exodus 33 verse 20. What, ha- what does it say in Exodus 33 20? No one looks upon God and lives. And we know in 1 Corinthians, it repeats this. No one has ever seen God. For the Father does not have a body like men, right? We know that passage. Jesus in John chapter 4, the Father is spirit. So y'all have heard me even last week say over and over again, when we see a physical manifestation of God in the Old Testament, then it is highly likely, because I'm no expert, I'm just saying what I think, it's highly likely that that is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But I'm not sure that's what this is. Because it's quite interesting here. It seems to me like the Father in heaven is manifesting himself out in such a way so that they can see him and they know he's in his presence. And here's why I say that. They saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire and stone, like the very heaven for clearness. This is the same thing Ezekiel saw when he looked up and saw the glory of God, this pavement of stone, although he didn't see the feet. And it doesn't say in here, and I'm just trying to go, it doesn't necessarily say that they saw his feet. They saw what's under his feet, right? In other words, they only, if they did see him and he manifested himself in this way, they only could look at the feet. They would never look above that. It was all they could get. And so in some ways, in some ways, maybe that's what this is. This could still be others. I'm just simply saying maybe that's what it is. It leaves a lot of questions here for me, but I know what it does mean is that they truly saw God and were welcomed into his presence. And they see that payment. Like God had told Moses, take off your shoes for you're standing on holy ground where God's steps is perfect. It is holiness, right? That's what this is saying. And so here, verse 11 kind of gives me this hint. Because I, I believe Exodus thirty three twenty. Nobody looks at God and lives. But look at what it says in verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. In other words, in some way, God withheld his judgment on them. Because no one looks at God and lives unless God withholds his hand from them. Right? So this moment was a moment unlike any other where God is showing the people just a glimpse, just a glimpse, like he would do Moses with this fragment, the tail end of himself, right? And he's, for this moment, not doing what would normally happen just so they can see. I'm welcoming you into my presence. I'm welcoming you into my presence. You know what blows my mind? Is that Aaron was there. I told you I'd refer back to chapter 32 in a little bit. Moses is going to go on up a little bit farther, up the mountain, and he's going to be there 40 days and 40 nights, the scripture tells us. And in those 40 days and 40 nights, the people of Israel get restless. They already It's not even been a month and a half. And they heard the voice of God rumble the, rumble the whole mountain. They heard all of that stuff. They knew what God does. But they sit there and go, we need some, we don't know if Moses is coming back. We need some physical manifestation to, to, to worship. 
even though God said, don't make another idol in mind. Don't make carved images, graven images. You can't do it. We need something else to worship, he says to Aaron. And what does Aaron say? All right, tell you what to do. Understand, they weren't trying to worship a cow. They were trying to create an image of the God who brought them out of Egypt is what they were trying to do. Aaron was there when God manifests himself out on the mountain so that he can see who he was. How did Aaron ever possibly think that the God of Israel can be brought down to a golden cow? He was there. Now, we'll get to that in chapter 32 in 2025 or so. Don't worry about it. But notice what they said. And if I, could, if I could add this in. So if we have first, we see the sacrifice and the sprinkling of blood for the forgiveness of sins. If we're going to enter into God's presence, that must happen. The words of God have to be understood, read, and confessed by faith that we will follow. That must happen. Then we see in verse 11, when that happens, we are ushered into the presence of God. No images can contain what they see right here. No images can contain it. They're ushered into the presence of God. And look at what it says in verse 11. They beheld God and they ate and drank. Isn't that fascinating? That they not only came into the presence of God, but they communed with him. They ate with him there. Now, I hope, I hope that the imagery becomes palpable for us. Because we're sitting there going, man, I would love, again, let me put this back. I would love to see that, right? If we could just see some of that glory, see what they saw. Isaiah tells us about it. It tells us in Isaiah chapter 40, in one of my favorite passages, when it, in Isaiah 40, by the way, it, it, it's that prophecy about John the Baptist. Y'all remember? a voice crying in the wilderness and the gospels tell us that's who he's talking about was John the Baptist, Isaiah 40. And it says, what does this prophet who's going to be the one crying in the wilderness that makes straight the pass, what is he going to do? And it says, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So this one who is coming, right, who is going to make straight the path, crying out in the wilderness, is going to come and say, look, there he is. He's going to bring you into the presence of God and say, look, there he is. And so is that what happens? I would say to you, absolutely, because you turn to, first John, I mean, to John's gospel and you see John say, there's one who is coming who was a witness to the light, speaking of John the Baptist. He was not the light. He became witness, to bear witness about the light. And he said, the true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world. And we can say that we want to see God's glory like they saw in Exodus 24. And I would tell you, we have something better. You say, Josh, if I could just see that picture, that glory there, surely I will follow the rest of my life, right? We have something better. Just as we saw, we have better blood that's sprinkled on the greater altar that covers us. John tells us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what did John say whenever Jesus walked up? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, he fulfills Isaiah 40 by saying, he is here. His glory has come. I'm telling you all, the point of the gospel is, while Moses and those elders saw some feet and some shining ground and they were welcomed into the presence of God, we have seen something greater. We have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's greater. And what does Jesus invite us to do? Eat with him. Come and feast with me. And we gather together around the table. And we gather together around the table. I know for us that language doesn't always make sense because we're usually sitting in chairs and we're passing out little cups and we're peeling back little cellophane stuff. But the picture of that is that we have come to gather together to feast upon the one who came for us and shed his own blood who sprinkled that blood on the altar and on us and washed us clean and welcomed us into the presence of God. And now we eat with him. And we know, as Paul says, as Paul says, we do this, and every time we do this, we're proclaiming there's a better meal coming. So while that meal is glorious, thanking God for welcoming us into his presence through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, confessing that we believe and we follow him, while that meal is glorious, Revelation 19 tells us there's even a better meal coming when all of the saints of God, saved by his grace, having been washed by the blood of the precious lamb, are welcomed into the table of God and we feast together at that great marriage supper. We eat together in God's presence. You see, Exodus 24 is telling us the very thing we're longing for. If you're wanting to come into the presence of God, it's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Confessing with our mouth that he is Lord and we'll follow him. Being ushered into his presence to eat with him and be reminded, be reminded every single time we do that it's only by his shed blood and his grace in our life that we are here, that we're present. What happens next in Exodus 24? The Lord said to Moses, come up with me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tables of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you and behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. So the Lord puts Aaron and her in charge, leaves them with the people. Moses, and it says, Joshua, go up even farther up the mountain. Then Moses went up the mountain, up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 
40 days and 40 nights. Moses, in this way, the imagery becomes clear of he's acting as the high priest for the people. Just in chapter 25, really chapter 25 all the way through 32 is the section of where Moses writes down what he heard on the mountain. It's full thing. And what is that section about? You need to build me a dwelling place. So God has come, delivered his people. He told them from the beginning, I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. He has not only done that, he has qualified them through the shed blood of bulls and goats and sacrifices, through the confession of their faith in the word of God that was given, he has qualified them to now dwell in the presence of God. And God says to Moses, all right, that's done. Now it's time to build me a place to dwell with you, to build me this tent, this tabernacle, design the furniture, Talk about the Ark of the Covenant. Give us that basin. What is the showbread? What are these things that come along in there? That's what it's time to do. So what you see in this next section is God saying, okay, everybody's qualified, everybody's ready for me to dwell with them, for me to live amongst them. And that's what he's going to do. And like the high priest who goes into that curtain, into the Holy of Holies, Moses enters into that Holy of Holies. Moses enters into that, the mediator, the high priest for his people, and he's going to come out and say, here, are, here is our rules. Here are our guidelines. Here's what we must do. All of this in Exodus 24, of course, points us, as I said from the beginning, to the one who's greater than Moses, our high priest who entered into the very presence of God, into the cloud of heaven, if you will, entered into his presence on our behalf, sprinkling not this house made by hands that at first was a tent, later would become a temple, sprinkling not in those things made by men's hands, but on the real altar in heaven. There he is. That's the greater mediator for us. Exodus 24 is for us. How can I dwell and live in the presence of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, through obedience to his word and the confession of faith in him, dwelling in his presence and feasting, communing with him every single day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is good for us. May we know Christ and God, may we live in his presence. Father, all by your grace, may we be a people who are not only acquainted with your word, but obedient with your word. May we be a people who are committed to your ways in every way. For as we see here in Exodus, you are the one that not only created us and sustains us, but you're the one who saves us and keeps us every single day. So Father, may we follow you. All of this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.